In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Do not be fooled by what is marketed as plant-based. That's the new fat-free, right? And people are eating it up. They think it's good for the environment. Wrong. This crap is in is uh, developed in a factory. It's worse for the environment. Like, don't be fooled by nonsense again. We just can't fall down the same path. You know, everyone throughout the 80s and 90s, and even some people still today, buy fat-free stuff. For it to, you're, you're taking out the most important nutrients and you don't understand that we're fueled by fat. I'll talk about that. But I don't want to state the obvious here. I mean, I think a lot of people who are listening know, like you eat in those middle aisles, you eat fast food, seed oils, all this crap. You're going to get really, really sick. So instead, I want to get into insights that I have learned from the research and now I am prioritizing in my life and I think I feel the best. And it's three areas, Sean. Gut health, nutrient bioavailability, and metabolic flexibility. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. If you listen to this podcast or you followed me on social media or read my Substack, you certainly understand that when we consider mental health, it is impossible to separate that from our physical well-being. And one of the challenges that exists for me in the modern medical system, especially in the United States, is there is just separate subspecialties. To identify something as a discrete psychiatric illness outside of its context, where someone's lifestyle, their sleep, their nutrition, the amount they move, whether they're metabolically ill, to separate something as if it's separate, a distinct psychiatric condition that requires a pharmaceutical without intervening with one's health makes no sense to me. And it's part of the problem of the sick care system. So obviously I've been deep diving into various aspects of the scientific literature, specifically in nutrition. I've emerged from the dungeon after <laughs> five years of deep diving. Five years? Yes. Has my, it really been that long? My beard is now hanging down to my belly. <laughs> and I feel like I have at least got a foundation, a structure that optimizes my own health. And Sean, I'm not sure if you've heard of this term. And I love this term. It's relatively new called biohacking. God, I hate biohacking term. You said that on the phone the other day. What what does that conjure up for you? Um I think it I feel like it's very like American. Like we're always looking for shortcuts. We're looking for ways to maybe take advantage of things. And for me, when it comes to biohacking, it's almost like a form of reductionism where you isolate the one thing that is showing some type of benefit and then focusing solely on that 
we're not taking like a holistic approach to many other things. Well, maybe I can educate you because I think you're off on that. I know. I actually, <laughs> I actually believe biohacking is the ultimate holistic approach to optimizing our health. So let me just give you my understanding of the term. And, and first, like it, I think it was coined by Dave Asprey. Mm, I remember uh, him. Yeah, uh, he's the bulletproof guy. Yes, yeah. he he's got he's interesting because he incorporates a lot of science. And so I MCT can, oil was his big thing, right? In yeah, coffee. Yeah, he has a bulletproof coffee. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know the ketogenic diet and metabolic flexibility, a number of things. Now I've just caught, cross-referenced this with a lot of various science. And as you know, I'm extremely skeptical of mainstream organizations subspecialties in the medical system mm -hmm. like nutritionists for example because of the influence of industry and lobbyists and government developed guidelines and then how the how they're educated so things like calories in or calories out is so antiquated the food pyramid is a commercialized version of a diet that will make everybody sick if you followed it and those who do, it certainly does. You know, we live in a sick care system in the United States. So I've had to move completely away from mainstream nutrition. And, you're, and I'm trying to get information from, you know, people who are really independent. They're scientists, they're researchers. And there's a big piece of this on social media now for those who follow it. Uh, if you get in the algorithm, you're going to, you know, find yourself connected to biohacking experts. Now, the science to me is fascinating. As a term... Uh, it encompasses an array of techniques aimed at optimizing bodily performance, potentially extending one's life's lifespan. It's really ways that you can best allow your body to both fuel and burn fat and optimize its, its nutrition and increase performance in mood and sleep. Listen, we're all interested in trying to live the longest, um, and you know, certainly feel really great in, in life. And everything in my area of study is trying to optimize a person's life, their well-being, their emotional well-being, uh, their relationships, their energy, their vitality, their passion, their desire for connection, creativity, everything that makes life worth living. And so it's so important that we try to understand, you know, how we can do that. You know what some typical forms of biohacking are? Intermittent fasting, mm -hmm. uh, ways to maximize exercise, meditation, cold exposure, uh, sauna, you know, heat exposure. The things we've talked about on here as far as like optimal sunlight and timing. And when it comes to nutrition, it's not just the foods. It's also like the timing, mm -hmm. when we eat, how much. So there's so many holistic aspects to have to integrate. And on my Substack, anyone who wants to join my Substack, drmcfillin.substack.com, it's free. Sign up. You'll get a weekly publication. And one of my recent ones was biohacking your nutrition, which is I want to be able to share with what I've learned in my quest for an optimal diet. Now I did lock myself in the dungeon <laughs> um, and I tried a lot of different things. So I've experimented myself and ultimately I, I do come down 
I, I have come to the conclusion that you have to commit to something and find ways in an empirical way to measure how it's affecting your own body. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I started probably doing this around 2014, 2015. Did you ever do any blood work or anything to like check your levels um, pre and post? Because that's something I'm interested in doing. Maybe we can do it, you and I, uh, and get Kelly. We'll just draw our blood. We'll see what our levels are. And if we pursue any one of these particular areas, do some type of post. I'm curious to, to see the impact. Yeah. What, what I did is I got gut microbiome tested. Okay. I, d- I did that once before. It was a long time ago, though. So Same company. You and I did it. Yeah. Okay. So I, I've done that a few times. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know you know, how accurate it is or where the science has evolved. And I'll be open that science is evolving. Mm -hmm. And so I can communicate to this audience today why I did what I did, the conclusions I've come to, how it affects my body, and what I know of the scientific literature. So, yeah, I've tried carnivore. I've tried paleo. I've done a uh, Mediterranean diet. I've done what's called animal based which is you know Paul Sal- Dr. Paul Saladino um, really speaks about and coined the term animal based i've tried to follow conventional guidelines like increasing organic fruits and vegetables uh, i've done intermittent fasting regimens from shorter and extended periods and as i mentioned before i've analyzed my my gut microbiome but i think what's most important is i monitored my mood energy and sleep on various foods and that's just more for you how you were feeling that day not any type of typical measurement it's just a a a mind well it's an extended period of time yeah right so i'm pretty attuned into probably too attuned and very vigilant to my energy levels how i feel my body my mood and things like that so yeah you're you're monitoring that i think the most important thing like and we'll get into it is also like because we're going to talk about gut health is you know just recognizing your bowel movements and Mm -hmm. what is ideal stool and how often because we're we're really trying to optimize our gut yeah doo-doo talk you know what the one thing about biohacking um What I've noticed is that those who pursue it usually have some type of past illness, either in adolescence or poor diets that later on in life, they start trying to find solutions for. But you never had that, which is why I was, you know, what's the goal? For a lot of people, the goal was to improve their their health and, and get better, to feel better. But were you feeling poorly before you started on this path? Or was this something that you were interested in? You know, what's interesting is I think people get used to the way they feel and they don't know what feeling good is. No, I'll, I'll agree with that. You know, coming after um, uh, we had uh, Dr. Stillman on and he was talking about HRV and I didn't know anything about HRV and I've got my watch on and I was like, I wonder if my watch measures it. And I looked at my HRV scores and he had mentioned something in the podcast that like, if your levels are like below 20, you know, you're, you're really stressed and we need to work on that. And I was like, Oh my, looked at my levels and I was just like, Holy crap. You know, I didn't know, but maybe my body is in a complete stressed out state a lot of times. So now this is an area where I'm starting to read a little bit more. Maybe we can do a future discussion on it because, uh, I'm trying some things and, and, watching to see what happens. 
Yeah. So, so that question, you know, what is someone's new normal? Mm-hmm. You know, how many people just say, well, it's because I'm older now. Oh, you know, I say that. They, gi- they give in <laughs> to the child. I'm, you know, my schedule is different. I'm, I'm working really hard. I'm tired at the end of the day, but I eat really well. So I think I'm healthy. Yeah. I, like I am. Some of this is, is the fear on my own end. Uh, obviously, we've talked about this, having a father die at 50. But I also want to age with vitality and strength and passion. I want to optimize my life. So, like, for example, as, as like, what is the new normal? What happened before we got on, on air today when you said your back was bothering you? Oh, <laughs> you, you made me sit down and you were checking my, my hip. Yes, um, hip mobility. Hip, hip mobility, yeah. yeah. Which I don't clearly don't have. It was horrible, <laughs> yeah. right? So, like, basically, we just sat on the floor. You know, you, you, you put your leg in. You cross the leg other. Like, your leg should go down. You should be able to kind of put your hands on the floor. Like, you should demonstrate hip, hip mobility. And if your hips are really, really tight, well, then your hamstrings are tight. There's going to be more um, pressure on your lower back, right? So, this... This functional aspect of the body and doing like little things that can actually improve your health and how you feel is part of biohacking. Like, so it's very clear that you have to work on hip mobility. Mm-hmm. And I told you that I used to grind my teeth in my sleep, apparently. Mm-hmm. And so, like, my dentist said I should like wear a mouth guard. I wear one. So. I'm not wearing a mouth guard. I like. I don't want that. Like, it, it interfered. I didn't like it. Like it was uncomfortable. Yeah. So, weirdly enough, I started on a routine in the morning that included stretching, um, my hip mobility, and now my hip mobility is really good. You saw it. Mm-hmm. And I stopped grinding my teeth, and I've done some research on it. There's a connection between hip mobility and teeth grinding. Weird. And so I like to wonder, like that obviously could have a role in something like migraine headaches, mm-hmm. right? Because the hip bone's connected to the leg <laughs> bone, right? Everything's connected, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I want to, Sean, I want to feel good. I want to feel good into my 50s and 60s and 70s. And to be honest, I'm, I feel better in my 40s than I did in my 30s because I changed the way that I live. In my 20s, my 30s, I was going to school, working multiple jobs, started a business, had young kids. You know, I was surviving. I wasn't thriving. You know, you're just trying to, you're trying to get through each day, right? You're focused on other things. And becoming a a clinical psychologist in this healthcare environment, and you look at the data on sickness and obesity and how many people are unwell, even younger generations. How can I help people feel well without considering these aspects. Mm -hmm. So what I've discovered for myself, I believe can ultimately benefit others. Nonetheless, there's vast biodiversity that exists and leads me to conclude that there might not be a universally optimal human diet. Instead, our unique genetic makeup reflects centuries of adaptation. I do have faith in our body's capacity to adapt to natural resources available. And my key takeaway here is each person does have to embark on a similar journey to determine, you know, the ideal foods for themselves. I do think it might have something to do with your ancestry. So if you, for example, you know, we're almost 
primarily from Northern European, right? Where Irish, mm-hmm. Scottish, you know, that's kind of been the evolution of our genetics when we did genetic testing. Yep. Right. So, I mean, what do you survive on there because of the change in seasons? Of course, you know, you're going to only have available vegetables that are locally grown for a period of time. Mm-hmm. So you probably end up surviving mostly on animal products, right? So beef and and during those cold goat. during the cold months, it l- probably transitions over to a more protein rich diet. Protein fat, you know, yeah. in- including dairy. Yeah. Right? Yep. Which would have been And raw. potatoes. <laughs> potatoes, yeah. <laughs> 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 you know, so it's it's uh you know it's 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 individually based and so as you know like i am not big on vegetables right you know i, I kind of speak out about vegetables at some point i want to get into the details of that but i think there's an undeniable fact you know we were talking about this on the phone the other day mm-hmm. with modern industrial food production and packaged processed chemically loaded fare it is wreaking havoc on our health. So processed food, industrial seed oils, the hidden chemicals in many products, they really are dangerous to our health. Do not be fooled by what is marketed as plant-based. That's the new fat-free, right? And people are eating it up. They think it's good for the environment. Wrong. This crap is in is uh developed in a factory it's worse for the environment like don't be fooled by nonsense again we just can't fall down the same path you know everyone throughout the 80s and 90s and even some people still today buy fat free stuff for it to you're you're taking out the most important nutrients and you don't understand that we're fueled by fat i'll talk about that but i don't want to state the obvious here i mean i think a lot of people who are listening know like you eat in those middle aisles you eat fast food, seed oils, all this crap. You're going to get really, really sick. So instead, I want to get into insights that I have learned from the research. And now I am prioritizing in my life. And I think I feel the best. And it's three areas, Sean. Gut health, nutrient bioavailability, and metabolic flexibility. Okay. Not hip flexibility. (laughs) That's for another biohacking episode. (laughs) All right. Let's get into those three. All right. I could probably do an entire episode on gut microbiome. We're not going to do that. Mm -hmm. We'll just do an overview. Uh, It's often referred to as almost like our second brain. You know, it's the enteric nervous system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It does play an overall crucial role. Like that's such a complex ecosystem of trillions of microorganisms that inhabit our digestive tract. And it influences everything from our immune system to our mental health. Was it 80% of our serotonin is developed in the gut, if I remember? 90%? And that's only one neurotransmitter. Yep. Yep. Right? And I do think like, you know, things like your intuition, Mm -hmm. you know, we talk about it in terms of our gut, Mm -hmm. you know, gut feeling and so forth. Like that's just such a critical area that we have to be able to nurture and be aware of. This pharmaceutical environment that we live in, taking all these gut-destroying pharmaceuticals as if they're healthcare, 
it's absolutely insanity. You want to limit these pharmaceuticals to every extent possible. And how quickly people will take an antibiotic, which kills those gut microbiome. I have a, I have a belief. I, I have a belief that getting a cold or being sick should be a rare event. Rare. Maybe a mild cold once a year. Because I think if you are sick or you do have a cold, that's representative of poor immune health. And in this modern culture, we're all blaming each other for getting sick. I caught it from you. I got that from you. And that's such a bunch of malarkey, as President Biden would say. (laughs) (laughs) Malarkey. I'm going to keep the cursing to a minimum. But but it's such nonsense, right? Um, We're exposed to germs, if you want to call them that, Mm -hmm. all the time, right? Whether we get sick is representative of our immune health and what destroys our our immune system, right? Lack of sleep, poor exercise, the foods we're eating. Lack of sunlight. Stress, Mm -hmm. right? It increases vulnerability. So that is certainly something that you want to pay attention to. If you're fighting off colds or you have allergies or you're getting sick often, it's a good indication that your gut microbiome may not be functioning optimally. You might not have an optimal diet. Uh, You might not be balanced. So... For me, focusing on nurturing these beneficial microbes by incorporating a, a wide variety of nutrient-rich foods into your diet while minimizing the processed sugary foods, alcohol, and of course, managing stress that you know that all upsets that delicate balance. And then incorporating fermented foods. Okay. And this is certainly a new area for us, right? Where we are looking at the fermentation process and where are ways that we can optimize gut health by ingesting foods. Now you have a separate area that you're actually focusing on Mm -hmm. with sourdough bread. And I have introduced raw milk kefir. Mm -hmm. Now, when you look into the history of human evolution, and then you also consider cross-culturally, you go outside of our limited sphere here in the United States, and there's other cultures who will recommend like raw milk kefir as, uh, as, as if it's medicinal, right? So if not somebody's not feeling well, the doctors will make sure you increase the amount of raw kefir that you drink mm-hmm. other cultures will say that like this is crucial part of kids daily intake and in the united states we pasteurize our milk you know it's interesting um you maybe think of when my son was born whenever he had any type of like health issues the or even like a skin rash the doctors the, or the doctors that my wife would speak to would be like do you have any of your uh, mother's milk left Use that because that has everything your child needs to get strong and boost his immune system, like exterior, like rubbing it on the skin, and then also interior. It's fascinating. Breast milk is probably the one superfood that exists. Colostrum. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, so like try, that's going to be an interesting development is your ability to obtain colostrum to maximize your own health. Oh, I never even thought about that. That's not something I Google anymore. 
you, you don't seek out pregnant women? From, <laughs> no, I do not. No. <laughs> I don't either, folks. That's weird. <laughs> um, but, you know, going back to like when I'm talking about the optimal diet and I'll go through the foods I'm eating. Okay. I just want to know. I want everybody to know the foundations of this and what I ultimately came to the conclusion. So optimizing gut health is one of them. Um, so foods that optimize gut health is necessary. Also, like the, the thing that I was, this is what we're going to get as far as propaganda, right? There's a lot of people pushing plant-based right now. And I think it's important to recognize that a diverse species of bacteria resides in our gut, possess remarkable um, adaptability. It's capable of digesting both plant and animal-based foods. So your dietary choices exert an influence on that intricate balance of this gut bacteria. So for example, if you were to adhere to a carnivore diet, which is rem reminiscent of our predatory counterparts in the animal kingdom, their nutritional needs don't align with the broad spectrum of gut bacteria required to break down plant-based starches and indigestible sugars as they simply don't consume those substances. So um, basically you're gonna adapt, right? It's not, I'm not so certain like saying like if you just eat it plant-based that that optimizes your gut microbiome or that if you were just carnivore, that optimizes your gut. It just adapts specifically to the needs for that food base. Yeah, whatever you're feeding your gut, right. that bacteria will thrive. Yes. So I decided that I think to optimize this, there needs to be some dietary diversity. Mm -hmm. So I didn't choose to go full carnivore. And obviously I would never go plant-based. Why, why have I moved away from vegetables? Because of my experimentation. I was getting gut problems from eating too many vegetables. I just pulled up your sub stack. You've got two pictures of poop. Thank you for that. <laughs> check that out were you type one or type two after eating vegetables is that the issue it was neat like so those are the you're only using type three and type four in your article because those are the good ones ideal <laughs> ideal stool was yeah. the picture was put on my sub stack mm -hmm. um so basically it's got to you know what's best like a snake smooth, <laughs> <laughs> smooth and soft right yeah um so just just be aware of that so but it wasn't just that you know it's this is the weird story about how we adapt to a new normal, I would have this, this is probably back in 2013, 14, 15. I'd have this huge salad for lunch because I'm trying to eat more vegetables, right? And so my afternoon, I'd be like, oh, like gurgle belly bent over, you know? And you're so brainwashed. You think like, well, that's just the fiber. And I, you know, I, I just got to be able to, you know, Tough it out because this Power is through. because this is what's best for me, yeah. right? And and the truth of the matter is, like, plants themselves are they're life forms, and vegetables have an innate drive to survive, but they lack feet, fists, fangs, <laughs> you know. So they've they've evolved with an arsenal of chemical defenses known as plant toxins. They're, they're phytotoxins and they're anti-nutrients. And common plant compounds that can damage your gut include oxalates, histamines, phytic acid, and lectins, right? Now, um, I'm not saying completely avoiding them 
is what you need to do in order to, to live well because there are beneficial micronutrients in, in plants. What I'm saying is it should probably, in my opinion, be a small part of your diet. And if you can ferment those vegetables, you're going to increase the nutrient density of them and you're going to increase beneficial gut. Um, you're going to improve the diversity of gut microbiome in your, um, in your tract, your digestive tract. So um, I don't eat a lot of vegetables, but I eat a small amount of fermented vegetables. So gut health is the first part of this. Um, you know, things that we should recognize, Sean, as, as signs of poor gut health. Okay. You know, first is digestive issues. You shouldn't have bloating, gas, diarrhea, or constipation. Those are indicators of an unhealthy gut. One study suggested that imbalances in gut bacteria called dysbiosis play a, a development in um, IBS, which is irritable bowel syndrome for some people. And a healthy gut is absolutely necessary to be able to overcome that condition, which for some people it is absolutely debilitating. And so you should know that you should have a, mal a bowel movement one to two times daily, well-formed, easy to pass. Okay? Other things that would be indicated that you're having potentially poor gut health is certain food intolerances. And again, that's the thing that has to be figured out through trying new foods and then monitoring yourself, yeah. eliminating others, right? If you experience mm -hmm. this discomfort from consuming certain foods, it may suggest an issue with your gut. I've traditionally loved dairy. And now that I learned more about the pasteurization process and how this could be harmful to us, I eliminated pasteurized dairy and I brought in raw dairy and it improved my gut health, okay? So that's just something that's important to know. Unintended weight changes. Your, your microbiome may also impact the production of hunger hormones, such as ghrelin, which like affect like how you, like whether you feel full or not. Satiates you. Yeah. Because like, yeah. it, it can increase gut microbiome, inflammatory markers, which may lead to metabolic illness. Fatigue, sleep disturbances can be related to gut health. Um, skin conditions, acne, eczema associated with gut issues, frequent infections because a weakened immune system can result uh, and lead to like frequent infections such as, you know, what's, what's a typical one? Strep throat, mm -hmm. for example. Um, mood fluctuations. It's very much related to mood swings, anxiety, and even depression. So tell me, why is that not a frontline evaluation and treatment for people who are struggling with anxiety and mood, autoimmune disorders, and of course I mentioned chronic inflammation. So I think there's power in fermented foods and drinks. As I mentioned earlier, kefir, it's a fermented drink that's uh, traditionally made with cows or goat milk. If you can get it raw, obviously much, much better. Um, it, and it's really easy to make at home. And that's what I'm doing right now. Um, Sean's making his sourdough bread. Mm -hmm. I'm making my raw milk kefir that you have to first activate with kefir grains. And there are colonies of yeast and um, 
and lactic acid bacteria. They're left to multiply and ferment over 24 hours with kefir. So it's filled with probiotics. It contains up to 61 different bacteria and yeast strains, which uh, which for they're fat, for ta- fantastic for <laughs> microorganisms. So are you at the point where you're able to consume yet, or are you still feeding and nurturing and feeding and nurturing? No, I've been um, I've been consuming them. Okay. Previously, I was drinking kefir that was from grass-fed milk, but it was still pasteurized. Mm-hmm. So and you were buying at a local store, stuff like that. Uh, yeah. yeah. My my problem that I've been running into is that the kefir grains like they would eat off the pasteurized milk and that's how they like became activated and I had to introduce the raw milk into it and so once I had like 50% raw milk 50% of the pasteurized milk I, you know, I felt like it had a nice consistency and when I went all raw milk it shocked it it's just not becoming as thick as I want. So I've added prebiotics to it, which is oh, yeah. another, because yep. I'll feed off the prebiotics. So like, I think it is really important to look at, you know, how we can fuel this with the foods we're eating. Now you're doing the um, there's sourdough. A, there's a bit of history with sourdough. And there's, and when you look at the grains and everything like that, that's where the diversity comes in. So I was reading, um, you know, when you start doing things like this and watching videos and reading articles, then, you know, Apple news has this way of just sending you more articles of the things you're reading. And there was just recently a a study about, um, when you feed your starter, which flour has the greatest diversity. And, you know, I was feeding, you know, whole wheat flour or bread flour. And then I was using some, uh, another flour that I had found, but then it turns out that rye flour is, gives you the greatest diversity. So for the last maybe week and a half, I've been feeding the rye flour in with the objective of trying to increase the diversity in my sourdough and see how it affects uh, when I make the bread. So I'm going to make some some this weekend and, and see how it changed. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. So, you can so, get into it. Yeah, I think it's cool to be able to do stuff like that and to be more self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's important too. So once I kind of said, all right, I'm going to look for foods that optimize my my gut health. The next thing I looked at was nutrient bioavailability, okay? So knowing that a food is high in protein, calcium, or magnesium, all this can be misleading because you must consider how much each nutrient is actually absorbed into the body, and that's bioavailability. So what fraction of a given nutrient, once ingested, becomes available for use? So we want to optimize our diets for both nutrient density and bioavailability. So you put it another way, eat nutritious foods that are well-absorbed. Sean, this is what I've come down to. And this is where the science is clear. And I don't know how how I can be convinced any differently. Animal sources such as fish, eggs, grass-fed beef, and organ meat They crush plant sources in both nutrient density and bioavailability. And it's clear. And so if you are not eating animal-based foods, it it looks to me like it's impossible to get all the nutrients that you need to optimize your your health. So like, for example, you know that I eat beef liver. (laughs) You don't need a whole lot of it few times a little bit a few times a week but like if you're where if you're trying to get vitamin a for example right beef has 40 
IU, and beef liver has 53,400 IU in a serving. Um, niacin, which is B3, right? 17 milligrams compared to like kale, 0.5. Vitamin B6, 0.7 milligrams in beef liver to 0.1 milligrams in like kale, blueberries. Folate, 145 mcgs compared to like kale, 13, blueberries, 8. Can't get vitamin, where are you getting your vitamin B12 from? You know, if you're not eating, ingesting beef and animal products. And people don't know you get your vitamin C like from organ meat. And like you can get all the vitamin C you need just from eating that. Vitamin D, you know, from beef liver, vitamin E, e calcium, iron, phosphorus, potassium, zinc. So that's like critically important. And so people who are touting plant-based diets, there's other pieces to this too, why I don't think a diet that is primarily fruits and vegetables is what's best for the human body. Because where your food is grown, where it's harvest, harvested, and when you eat it in like the growth cycle affects nutritional bioavailability. Yeah, season, soil, travel time. I mean, I was listening to... Um, an individual talk about the majority of some of our fruits and vegetables, especially this time of year is coming from Mexico. Yeah. So the average mileage for a fruit and ve fruit and vegetable in the United States is like 1600 miles. So the moment you let's use um, spinach as an example, you cut spinach down. If you're not consuming it almost immediately, it's like half of the nutrients are being lost. And even when they bag those things and process them and you're getting them at the grocery store, you're maybe getting like 10% of the nutrients. So like even looking at any type of USDA data on the, uh, the minerals, the vitamins and anything, you don't know what you're getting based on where you're buying it, how you're buying it, how long it's been sitting around, all that stuff impacts you. So if you're going to a vegetable or a, a plant-based diet, the, uh, the local aspect and the organic and the eating immediately is one of the key factors towards, you know, actually having any type of benefit. And then there's the soil. Soil. In which it is now grown. Traditional industrial agriculture, it's led to a dramatic de decline in soil health and a decline in nutrient density. So I, I mean, I would not buy anything that's not locally grown. Yeah, well, we, we spoke about it in here before. There was that 2004 UC Davis study about the, um, the nutrient density of like 43 different vegetables and fruits and the declines that have happened over the last 50 years. And I believe there's been other studies that have happened since then. Yeah, I've, I have one here. So um, dating back as far as 1936, I've found that the soil of farmland across the globe is deficient in micronutrients, lowering their content in produce. To further prove the theory, in 2003, and now that's 20 years ago, Canadian researchers compared the data on current vegetable nutrient content to data from 50 years ago, mm -hmm. 50 years prior to 2003. Their findings showed that the mineral content of cabbage, lettuce, spinach, and tomatoes had depleted from 400 milligrams to less than 50 milligrams throughout the 20th century. And that's just a sampling of what they found. I think you're wasting your money ingesting that. 
And the numbers don't lie. So this is according to the CDC and the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Nine out of 10 Americans are deficient in potassium. Mm -hmm. Seven out of 10 are deficient in calcium. Eight out of 10 are deficient in vitamin E. 50% of Americans are deficient in vitamin A, vitamin C, and magnesium. More than 50% of the general population is vitamin D deficient, regardless of age. 90% of Americans of color are vitamin D deficient. Approximately 70% of elderly Americans are vitamin D deficient. So, folks, now you can understand if you're on our Instagram, Radically Genuine, and you see I post a lot of things on our stories, you know, about certain foods, you know, this is why. Uh, in a published paper, researchers Ty Beal and Flamini Ortensi rated foods based on their density and bioavailability of six priority micronutrients that folks tended to be deficient in. This is zinc, iron, folate, vitamin A, calcium, and vitamin B12 foods. The ones that scored very high include organ meats, shellfish, small fish, goat, beef, eggs, milk, cheese. You can also get some of these from some dark leafy greens if they are locally grown and in the most nutrient-rich soil that you could possibly have, right? This regenerative al you know, agriculture is what has to happen. And so one of the things I talk about in with parents here is that about half the U.S. population consumes less than a recommended amount of magnesium from, from foods. Mm -hmm. And do you know what a symptom is of low magnesium? What is it? Depression, anxiety, fatigue, concentration, difficulties. I was, I have been adding, I, I ran out of it, magnesium biglycinate or glycinate into my uh, smoothie in the morning, primarily for the reason of assuming that the vegetables that I'm consuming primarily from a local grocery store, grocery store is not giving me the magnesium I need in my diet. You can also get your magnesium from putting in an electrolyte packet, some of it, right? So mm -hmm. every day, uh, you know, I have an electrolyte packet in my water, first thing. And during the summer, I'll take more of it. Mm -hmm. And then there's other things that are really, like avocados, you know, are rich in magnesium. So is dark chocolate. So like an 80% cacao, something that's really high. And, you know, then you also get it from, you know, your other bio-available rich. And you need foods. magnesium to process vitamin D. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the other thing is like we, sometimes we'll, we'll look at one particular vitamin or nutrient, but we're not factoring in the co-variables or how these things are interrelated and how they, they work together to actually benefit us. Like vitamin K too. You know, the importance of vitamin K in being able to metabolize vitamin D, you know, mm -hmm. so your vitamin K, your magnesium, right? So even if you're out in the sun and you're absorbing the sun to maximize your vitamin D, if you're depleted of other nutrients, then you're not going to, you know, metabolize that and you could be vitamin D deficient. Which is why I always, I don't negatively respond to, but when someone says, oh, I'm taking a supplement, um, I'm taking, you know, the vitamin C supplement or I'm taking more vitamin D in pill form. 
Well, you can go down a rabbit hole and see how those supplements are are processed. Uh, a lot of them are synthetic, and the the methods at which they, you know, ascorbic acid. Yeah, boy, Jeez. I I mean, <laughs> I didn't realize it just this week. That's what I was reading about was ascorbic acid. That's like consuming um, eggshells and not eating the whole egg. You know, it's like it's just it's not vitamin C. Yeah, I mean, the the easy thing is get your nutrients from your food. Yeah, you know, food is medicine. I mean, it really is. Don't you know? I know some people really push supplements, and I wonder about whether they, you know, have some financial incentive in in some of these. You know, there's a lot of companies and spokespeople and, and all that. Get mm-hmm. it from food. I mean, that's how we've evolved. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't want to get anything from a factory. Mm-hmm. All right, so. So far, I've talked about two things, gut health and your um, nutrient bioavailability. The thir- I, I got one suggestion for you, and, and this is the, the value that I'm bringing to this conversation, <laughs> is I was looking, because we you know locally sourced vegetables and, and proteins are, of course, the primary, but you know, one way to get a lot of vitamin D, and it's locally here in the state of Pennsylvania, you know what it is? I'm putting you on the spot. I mean, we're we're close to some farming in Pennsylvania, and it's it's not it's it's a vegetable. It's mushrooms. Oh, really? Button yeah. mushrooms, organic button mushrooms are a great source of vitamin T, vitamin D. So when it comes to these like cold months, because you can't get a lot of vegetables locally. Yeah. Look at interesting. Look at the vitamin D in organic button mushrooms. They're actually because the way that they process vitamin D is very similar to the way that humans. Um, in terms of the sunlight and the, the whole, I was reading something about it. I'll include the link and I want you to read it too. And maybe you can point out how I'm wrong, but <laughs> I just thought that was highly, uh, highly interesting and valuable. Cool. Yeah. I'll check that out. And so the third piece that goes into my recommendations is metabolic flexibility. What does that mean? All right. Let's start with what is metabolism. You know, very simply, again, we can probably do an entire episode of this. And I do want to refer to people to Dr. Chris Palmer, mm-hmm. who is pioneering um, interventions, dietary interventions to support metabolic health because he believes that there are mental illness, some chronic and severe mental illness, you know, like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, is just a metabolic illness. And if you can target with dietary interventions, he sees a remission in those those symptoms i think it's an area of like very critical research but basically metabolism is you know what what are we utilizing for energy okay so um generally speaking most americans use glycogen storages right so carbohydrates and sugars are converted to glycogen feeds the cells it powers us for our energy expenditure. And if you don't use all your glycogen, it is stored as body fat. And excess body fat certainly is something that is just a predictor of mortality and poor health. And in the pre-industrial times, you know, we just didn't have restaurants and grocery stores. So humans had to go sometimes days without eating. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there was like plenty of food, 
like for example, after a hunt, and then they'll, you'd have to go through like long extended periods, maybe even in the winter time and so forth, where you know you weren't able to obtain that food. And we evolved that we had to then shift our metabolism. We had to gain our energy from the body fat that we had stored. So there could be a metabolic shift into what I think people know as ketogenesis or ketosis, right? So you're, you're now using your body fat for energy and you produce ketones, which fuel the brain. And the keto diet now is kind of like the latest fad that's hit the wellness world. Um, you know, many people swear by its benefits, like the low carb, high fat eating style, high protein. It's a metabolic process. It's just involved. It's burning your fat instead of your glucose for energy. So achieving a state of ketosis seems to have many benefits. It's used as a diet to treat chronic illnesses, um, including epilepsy. It's also used to optimize performance in various ways. While the benefits tend to be well-documented, like the underlying full mechanism is not, I wouldn't say it's completely known, but it's like an evolving literature base. I remember Dr. Palmer talked about autophagy. Yeah, so like the diet, autophagy is like when your cells mm -hmm. re regenerate. So like they die off and they regenerate. And this diet seems to enhance the ability of, of mitochondria, which is like that, power plant of the cell um, it delivers our body's energy needs in a manner that like reduces inflammation and oxidative stress so like if you can learn to optimize the way you use your energy it, it seems to like combat against diseases um, as well as like the typical stressors of of like modern ways of living okay so in, in terms of like physical effects keto being in a state of ketogenesis improves mood by improving blood sugar control because blood sugar can have dramatic effects on, on mood. Being a state of uh, ketosis has shown to, you know, increase the production of common neurotransmitters in the brain called GABA. GABA is like impl implicated in mood dysregulation and anxiety. The brain's highly energy dependent organ. And it re does require a constant supply of fuel to function optimally. And the traditional Western diet, which is high in carbohydrates, causes fluctuations in blood uh, sugar can lead to like brain fog difficulties in concentration which a lot of people say well now i have adhd blah 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 um, <laughs> so the keto diet can provide a stable like source of energy to the brain in the form of ketones which has shown to enhance mental clarity and focus now the reason i say flexibility is because there's downsides into being in ketosis long term and so if you think about the way we've evolved you don't necessarily want to be in ketosis long-term. It's just meant to drive us to be able to find our next hunt or to forage our food. Mm. And that's why we see so many of the problems with uh, anorexia. Um, so when people are in prolonged ketosis and they don't have enough body fat, you know, you're being compromised. Cognitively, you're compromised. And I do believe, and this is just like an interesting potential podcast down the line, although I have expertise in the treatment of eating disorders, for some reason we haven't really gotten into that here in, on the podcast, but we can do episodes on eating disorders, but anorexia is a starved brain. And there seems to be like an evolutionary adaptation. You become really hyper-focused, very obsessive, and you don't eat too much at a time. 
And that seems to um, prolong survival, mm. right? So, um, you know, a lot of people who develop anorexia and starved brain, they get misdiagnosed as obsessive compulsive disorder instead of just understanding that's a natural adapt adaptation process through evolution to try to uh, ensure survival because now you have to focus on getting food. Mm -hmm. So people with anorexia are obsessed with food. They might cook all the time but not eat. They might be like really folk, like attentive to social media posts that produce food. Like they are obsessive about it. But there's a fear of weight gain. I think the fear of weight gain in our modern culture was communicated as if it has something to do with just, you know, your body image. I don't think it's entirely due to body image, although in some fa factors, obviously, that might start it. And then you have distorted body image, but I think there's an evolutionary benefit where you don't eat too much, just enough to try to survive. There was a, a fascinating study. It was during World War II. There was some soldiers that refused to fight, and it was the starving. It was the Minnesota multiphasic yes. um, star, star, starvation study, the Minnesota starvation study. There was yeah. a podcast it was on it. Uh, it was government funded. It was government funded. Yeah. Um, it, fascinating listen. I'll try and find the links to it. I'm trying to remember who did the, the podcast. It may have been... Um, who did the 10,000 hours? Uh, uh, not, uh, anyway, yeah. moving on. Anyway, but the, 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 what these guys were talking about, they were obsessed with food. And when they were out, the one guy consumed like milkshakes. He went from every soda shop having a milkshake. He had like five Trying to feed the brain. Yeah, and yeah. then he like vomited, like that type of stuff. Just which really. On a, which on a side note, that study in itself assisted when during world war ii when the allied soldiers did find the concentration camps mm. and the prisoners were so starved when the food came in they couldn't just let them gorge on the food because they would get sick and potentially even die mm -hmm. and there's something called refeeding syndrome and eating disorders same thing happens when you're trying to refeed someone who's in anorexia if you refeed them too fast there's like electrolyte imbalances, probably a number of other things, you know, that can tax the, the organs, the heart, and it could lead to death. Wow. And that's another thing about the mental health field is you need a broader educational level, right? You have to understand that if you have somebody who's really sick, now ultimately they should be under medical care, but, you know, I, I can't even begin to tell you how often it's missed in primary care settings. But your diet has to kind of build as the body can adapt to it. So basically what they learned is that they have to withhold the food and give it to them in small doses and build it up. But the Minnesota study, these were men. And what happens is you, anorexia was induced. The symptoms of anorexia was induced with calorie deprivation. So anyone can, the same thing can happen to anyone else. And again, this is this is another thing that I've experimented with. So when I was younger, I was studying and I was treating eating disorders. So I induced that in myself through calorie restriction. Really? Yeah. I want to know what it felt like. So I can empathize, understand what my clients are going through, and then also provide the education. So what happened to me when I calorie restricted, and so I lost weight obviously I got very thin. Um, I got then hyper-focused on 
just eating enough to maintain like that. And I experienced... To maintain the focus? No, to maintain what my body looked like. Oh, okay. And then I, and so then foods got cut out Mm -hmm. and I got anxious about eating too much. Really? What, when was this? Uh, This is what happens when I move away, Roger. Yeah. Do I need to be here to look after you? (laughs) (laughs) It's experimental. I mean, it's why I'm, you know, did this. Well, how are you, how are you able, obviously it was something you consciously did. So you were able to pull yourself out how and why. And when? <laughs> yeah, it didn't go too long, probably. Okay. Maybe a couple months. Um, how did couple I do months? it? Couple months? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even when I did 75 hard. Oh, yeah. You know, when you do the two workouts Ding, a ding, day. ding, 75 hard. <laughs> <laughs> a year ago. Yeah, a year was, ago. Yeah. You know, you, you begin to experience something similar because you just burn a lot of calories and you're not ingesting them and you start to experience something similar. Basically, life becomes boring and you become a little bit miserable to live with, mm. right? And you can even probably ask my kids. They probably remember me like that for a period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, every, you know, I start making comments, you know, that's, you know, about food. Like it's just, yeah. So you want to, don't want to be in that state, right? But I, at least I can empathize and understand somebody who has... Uh, nutritionally and calorically deprived to the lost weight, their starved brain, they're going to see themselves in a certain way. Okay. Mm -hmm. So certainly ketosis is not optimal for people who are underweight and don't have enough body fat. Ketosis is not optimal. If you have anorexia, if you have an eating disorder, metabolically being metabolically flexible is the ability to be able to shift from a ketogenic state ketosis to using your glycogen storages. So you have to biohack this. So some concerns with um, long-term ketosis. Now, first of all, the ketogenic diet seems to be wonderful for people who are struggling with metabolic issues, obesity, insulin resistance. So adopting this can be transformative, potentially life-saving, and profoundly beneficial for your overall health. However, I think maintaining a perpetual state of ketosis may not necessarily be ideal for most healthy individuals. So instead, we want to think about it as occasional transitions into ketosis, which can be achieved through certain practices like intermittent fasting, brief periods, uh, you know, periods of very low carb eating, intense exercise, and so forth. These periodic shifts serve as a metabolic reset, endowing the body with a remarkable and enduring flexibility that contribute to overall health. Ketosis in itself, it's an inherently stressful state. And so when we've talked about the benefits, short-term benefits of inducing stress, hormesis, the process of your body reacting to a stressful event, it strengthens it, right? So Weight training is stress, and then you rebuild stronger. But your body really does require glucose to function optimally. So the, the fatty acids tell your body to slow down everything because it's ramping up metabolism you'd burn through all your protein and your fat reserves. So many people in keto and carnivore acknowledge that their T3 levels, the active thyroid hormone, falls. And there's some research that caloric restriction, protein restriction, 
or a keto diet can lower these T3 levels, but more research is needed. Um, and I mentioned even when we were talking with um, which doctor? Ken Berry? Dr. Ken Berry, carnivore, lies mm-hmm. my doctor told me. Um, that when I was just on pure keto, there was a little bit of dip mm-hmm. in energy and libido. And so that's when I shifted over to animal-based, mm-hmm. which was Paul Saladino, mm-hmm. which is adding in like honey and fruit as your carbohydrate source, organic, locally grown in that area to kind of fuel that process. And then boom, you get the lift, you know, the mood returns and your energy levels. So metabolic flexibility is also part of my plan. Okay. I think it's a survival advantage, improves our health. Um, Being able to shift from glycogen to ketones. This is really important with your mitochondria and maintaining low inflammation for a more comprehensive look into this get dr um christopher palmer's book brain energy Mm -hmm. and i think these should be interventions in mental health you know um i think i talked about it when we were uh interviewing dr chris palmer but uh, you can also do that with heart race heart rate based training when I was doing uh, marathon training, oh, yeah. I trained my heart rate to stay below cardio. Um, for me now at my age, it's probably below keeping a heart rate below 140. And you train your body to go into the fat burning uh, area for energy because you have limited glycogen stores within your body. So if your heart rate gets up too high, you'll burn through those glycogen stores. And you can only do that, though, if you're metabolically flexible. Yes. If you're metabolically ill, um, you're what's in, called insulin resistant. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of people who, you know, they exercise a lot, but they don't burn any body fat. There's I, so much in this area. I mean, there, there is. There's a lot there. I mean, I have body fat, but there's not a lot. So when I was doing that and I was doing the marathon training, I got super skinny. Yeah. And it wasn't healthy for me. So I stopped running marathons. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, that's a really, that's taxing on the body. There's nothing healthy about running a marathon. And people like to do it. I only did it because you said I'd never be able to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> I think one time, like, listen, I'm not going to tell anyone on how they should live their life. Right. Yeah. But it's, it's not like um, you run a marathon, you're in, in increasing your longevity and your health. You know, you're beating your body down. There's higher rates of all-cause mortality. Mm-hmm. You know, people go, oh, he's a marathon runner. I can't believe he just died of a heart attack like that. My, um, my brother-in-law, so my, my wife's sister's husband, just did an Ironman, yeah. which, like, the real Ironman, not like a half uh, Ironman. I just, 12 hours of just constant <laughs> running, swimming, biking, that's insanity to me, but... Good for him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people love how that makes them feel. Yeah, the yeah. challenge. Yeah. Just so many things about that. So let's transition now. Now that like we kind of reviewed the three factors that were most important, which you know, gut health, bioavailable nutrients, and metabolic flexibility, I developed a list of priority foods that are going to have a positive impact on my on my gut, mm-hmm. and they're. Nutrient packed. 
These are the foods that I believe are the highest bioavailability of nutrients and they assist in fostering metabolic flexibility. Now I say this up front, these foods constitute at least 90% of my diet. I reserve the remaining 5 to 10% for maintaining flexibility and being able to adapt eating habits to social environments yeah. and not becoming too restrictive and too obsessive. You come over to Sean's house for dinner, the family's over and we made something with white rice. You're like, oh, I'll just, oh, I can have some white rice with this. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe right, you know, white rice is probably not as bad as my mind, mm -hmm. you know, make, makes it out to be. I have to look into it, but yeah, like certainly don't want to go out to a restaurant and be that guy. And that's no fun. Yeah. Even though like the foods that I'm going to talk about are generally what I'm going to get at a restaurant anyway, True. because they're, I think they're the best foods. Yeah. They, I mean, I'm just going good. to think the best food. So, but there needs to be an occasional indulgence. Like I said, we went to Bolite the other night Ooh. and I got butterscotch pudding. Did you, you really? Know, for the dessert. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really good. Fancy pants. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what Bolite stands for? No. Mushrooms. Oh. Did they have button mushrooms? <laughs> they have mushrooms in almost every dish. Well, there you go. That's because we're so close to Kennett Square. They're probably getting well, it. Well, they pick it. They yeah. Fantastic. No, yeah. It's a great restaurant. All right. So here are my general like 13 foods. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I'll get into like the schedule of eating them, how often I eat them and so forth. So obviously at the top of my list, grass fed, grass finished, beef, lamb, and organ meats. You know, I just have to have those as a staple of my diet, okay? Uh, raw milk, kefir, which I make homemade, pasture-raised eggs, organic berries, organic raw carrots, avocados, wild-caught salmon and any low-mercury fish. If you can get oysters, clams, and mussels, right, that's just power-packed nutrients, right? Obviously, that's probably more of something that you get rarely. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, try to get that once a month, you know, in, in my opinion. Fermented vegetables. Um, occasionally, some sweet potatoes. Lo locally sourced honey. An organic dark chocolate with, that's at least 80% cacao. Okay. That's my gut diet with nutrient um bioavailability like those are my staple foods we have a organic farmer that comes to our farmer's market they're very small they only have a limited amount of stuff the guy's a botanist so he's there we can talk to him he had some sweet potatoes just like two weeks ago holy crap they were fantastic i've had sweet potatoes before but i don't think i've ever purchased them at a farmer's market they tasted incredible it yeah. was like tasting sweet potatoes for the first time no they're great you know they really they taste really good too. yeah they do you can eat the skins oh, and everything yeah. butter on it mm -hmm. right so um, to enhance then the metabolic, metabolic flexibility, I try to develop a schedule that is best going to allow me to enter into ketosis and also then fuel back up my glycogen storage. So this is your breakfast, lunch, dinner. Yeah. Similar to what you would ask a guest on our show about their optimal, optimal diet. What do they do? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, that type of stuff. Okay. Yeah. So 
I want to get about a 16 hour fast. That's called intermittent fasting, right? Traditionally speaking, it's not as hard as you think. Uh, traditionally speaking, you know, people would eat dinner at like five o'clock and maybe not even eat dinner till nine o'clock in the morning. There's your 16 hours, right? That's a 16 hour fast. And there's so many reasons for that, including optimized sleep. Um, however, you know, we want to be able to burn our body fat. We have, you know, we'll have excess body fat. So if I'm going to be someone who's going to get a morning workout in, you know, that's also going to increase my metabolic flexibility. So let's say I eat dinner somewhere between six to eight at night. That means my first meal of the day is going to be between 10 a.m. and noon. And I want protein, mm -hmm. right? I want to feel satiated. Um, I might want to still stay in ketosis. So that's usually going to be eggs, maybe avocado slices, some grass beef sausage, add some fermented vegetables in there too, you know, like a fermented like kimchi or something like that. And then my lunch is going to be somewhere between 1 p.m., 3 p.m. Okay, that's so you can see everything's going to be in for the most part in a eight hour window. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some grass fed beef or fish for lunch, um, maybe some more fermented vegetables. And then your, my dinner is where I'll have beef or fish again, but I might make a raw milk kefir smoothie. And this is where I switched it up. So uh, I was having raw milk kefir smoothie with my breakfast yep but that was pushing me out of ketosis spiking my blood sugar maybe a little bit so i'd get hungry a little bit earlier and i wanted to optimize my sleep so in my raw milk kefir smoothie it's blended with organic berries mm -hmm. some locally sourced honey so it sweetens it up you know i'll throw a raw carrot in there and um it tastes really good how does that improve your sleep so I, I, I learned that um, by being able to have glycogen storages um, and having like those sugars or something at night, it can improve for some people sleep. Um, you enter into a deep sleep, you don't wake up. And that's exactly what I found. Mm. So I just sleep better if the I... placebo effect. <laughs> no. no, that could be. It yeah. could be. And we have to acknowledge that. Yeah. So a lot of these things, the power of beliefs is obviously powerful. So I mean, totally. <laughs> like when I talk about this is experimentation with me personally, yeah. how much is related? Because this is what I actually 100% believe. Now I tried to be empirical about it to try to eliminate that. Um, and, it, and some things just hold true. You know, too much vegetables don't feel well. Mm. Don't, I crave my steak. If I eat too much, you know, sugar or carbs don't feel well, right? So metabolic flexibility, gut health, all those things are important. So I just personally found that I sleep better if I have some carbohydrates at night. So I'm just going to have them at night and um, I'd have to, you know, kind of go back into that research and explain why, but I just sleep better. That doesn't mean it's everybody. Some people say that keto improves their sleep, but uh, not for me. You know, it just didn't happen for, for me. So to you know wrap this up today, Sean. Like you know, I this is what I know, and this is what has worked for me. Um, and I think there's just a ton of science that supports it. And until we are able to better really assess and intervene in people's lifestyle and, and nutrition, we're still going to be deal with chronic illness, and you're going to have mental health problems related to it. I just don't know any other way that you can effectively intervene with somebody if you're not considering these things. Agree. Yep. Whole foods, buddy. So uh, to wrap this up, I do want to encourage people to please, if you haven't already, check out my Substack. Obviously, I'm going to get into this a lot more, drmcfillin.substack.com. This has got to be a, a critical, 
component of your health intervention. And you don't really know what you don't know. So until you experience improved mood, energy, vitality, and sleep, you probably don't know how good you can feel. And to me, it's worth it. And I know there's a lot of people who are, who are thinking about, well, this type of diet is too expensive. It's, it's not. And that, I mean, that's probably another podcast. The economics but of it. There's been some research on it. You know, you can't, we should do that. Let's just keep track of how much we're spending on some of this stuff and just jot it down. And you eat less mm-hmm. when you eat the like beef, you can get beef from the grocery store. Um, even if it's not grass fed, grass finished, you know, dude, making your it, own bread, a lot cheaper than going to the store. <laughs> yeah. A raw milk, raw milk kefir, ferment, fermenting your own vegetables. Mm-hmm. You can save a lot of money. And you're learning a skill. You're learning a skill. So yeah, please ch- check us out. Um, Biohacking Your Nutrition was part of my life-changing habits series on my Substack, drmcfilm.substack.com. Don't forget to check out our YouTube channel. We are heavily, heavily shadow banned, but we're going to get some cool stuff going on out there. See, I don't even like to use the word shadow banned because I want to see the, the data behind things, but there's definitely some limitations <laughs> of reach that are happening. And uh, I'd like to, you know, the algorithm to work itself out. Um, more people that come to our YouTube page, uh, we can probably overcome that. And we just posted the video on um, uh, the drug uh, and adolescence. Lexapro. Lexapro. Yeah. So Acetylopram. I'm going to say that wrong. Is that right? Acetyl. Jesus. That's me. Citalopram. Citalopram. Citalopram is the the brand name. That's the um, the generic. Okay. Lexapro is is the brand name. Is is what. and the Citroplex, there's another brand name. Anyway, and it's different in different countries, <laughs> yeah. right? So we know it as Lexapro, and so that video is up now on our YouTube. I'll also post it to my Twitter, which is now X. So please follow us. I want to thank everybody for listening to the radically genuine podcast. Share these episodes. Let's, I mean, let's move beyond the sick hair system and the nonsense that's being spread out there to serve industry. Let's really focus on health. Health is freedom. There's no doubt about it. And uh, you know, I, I think if we are more uh, communicative and we're sharing like information about what works for whom, then you know, we, we create a life that we just feel better, which is better for all of us. You know, it's better, better for all of us to, to detach from the dependence on the sick care system and to see ourselves as, as just divine beings that can thrive in this body if we are able to utilize all the gifts that have been provided through us with fruits, vegetables, and meats. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you're considering suicide, Call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.